Open your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 4. We have been for some time working our way through this magnificent treatise by the Apostle Paul. It is, as we said, uh, really a call to a church for partnership in the gospel. But as Paul understands, any such partnership begins with a correct understanding, begins with a foundation of truth. And so he's been laying that foundation for us. He's been spelling out for us the, the, the realities of the gospel and those which demand the gospel. Of course, arguing that all have sinned and therefore, if they're to be righteous before God, it must come as a gift of grace. It must come, as he said, by faith. And he's demonstrated that truth in the first three chapters with an extensive display of sinfulness mentioned both by natural observation and also by declaration of God's law, God's law declaring man over and over and over again to be guilty. And so the law, which so many Jews believed was their way of salvation, ultimately was simply a way of condemnation, Paul has been telling them. But in chapter 3, out of the dark despair of that message of sin, Paul presents the solution to their plight and to our plight, and it's the solution of faith. It is the gift of righteousness by faith, the righteousness of Christ given to us or credited to our account simply because we believe. And as his prime, if you will, evidence for that, his prime argument for that, he appeals where every great preacher appeals, he appeals to Scripture. He takes us back to the Old Testament and particularly to the life of Abraham, beginning in chapter 4, presenting to us the evidence of Abraham's life. One of the most revered patriarchs in all of Israel, if not the most revered. And he spells out to us what Genesis 15, 6 says so clearly, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, his faith was credited as righteousness. He believed and God counted it to him that way. And so Paul's whole point here is that Abraham was blessed by God, not because he obeyed a law. He was blessed by God because God decided to declare him blessed and God declared him blessed because God first declared him righteous. God first declared him worthy. And all of this because of his faith. Not because of what he did, not because of some deed, not because of some ceremony, not because of some religion. His belief, his faith becomes the vehicle of God's blessing. So to state the issue more clearly, Paul reasserts that none of this comes, none of this arises from, Anything that the Jews traditionally believed was the basis of God's blessing. None of it arose from what they typically wrote about, what they put their hope in, what was their, the foundation of their identity, which was essentially the law and particularly the ceremony of circumcision. But Paul points out it wasn't even circumcision, it couldn't have been. Because Abraham was blessed and Abraham was declared to be righteous before any of that stuff ever existed. Before the law ever existed 
before circumcision was ever even mandated by God. And what he tells us in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4 is that this was not only true of Abraham, but it's true for all who believe like him. So Abraham is a sort of a father to all who believe. He believed before his circumcision. It was counted to him as righteousness at that moment. And all who believe like him are counted as his children, whether they're circumcised or not, and are also counted as righteous. Now, this was, as I said, would have been a shock to this whole system of Judaism because they defined their world according to those who are circumcised and those who are not. Those who were a part of the circumcised people, which is the Jews, the Jewish nation, they were considered to be God's people. And those who were not a part of the circumcised people, they were considered to be not God's people. And so this would be a shock that basically circumcision meant nothing in regards to being God's people. That was their whole basis for understanding themselves as a part of that group. But what Paul has to say today will even be more shocking to them as we come to verses 13 through 16. Because the Jews not only counted themselves as God's people because of circumcision, but they also based their hope on certain promises, that they would be heirs to certain inheritances that had been promised to them, they believed, through Abraham. They considered themselves the beneficiaries of guarantees that had been made because that God had given them certain promises, they felt like, through the Word of God. Now, you can understand the shock if you had gone your whole life believing that you were the heir to an estate, believing that you had been written into someone's will, thinking all along and banking all along that you had some hoard or some sort of uh, windfall that would be coming to you at some point, only to find out along the way that not only will you not receive the windfall, you're not even a part of the estate at all based on whatever heritage you believed was there. Israel would have been shocked to hear all this, but that's Paul's message to them, that they are far from overestimating their, simply overestimating their inheritance. They're not even a part of it at all. And beginning in verse 13, he goes right after what was their supposition that circumcision makes them heirs to these promises and tells them, Rather, it is those who believe. It is faith that marks out the true children of Abraham. He says in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, now, now don't read that and just conclude that this is some theological debate among Jews, and it has nothing to do with you. Don't conclude that this is some sort of internal family squabble about who gets what at the death of, a, of a, 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 some ancestor. This has everything to do, not just with Jews, but everything to do with you if you are counted as one of Abraham's children. If you are indeed counted as one of the heirs, 
you hear from this the message that although you may not have realized that you have been written into a will and there's something that is uh, that you are entitled to because of that because if you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with God, if you, your sins are forgiven and you have the gift of righteousness by faith, you are a child of Abraham. All that Paul speaks of here belongs to you. In fact, Paul is saying that these promises, which every Jew believed involved only them, are very much involved with every person who ever believes like Abraham. You become heirs. You become inheritors of what was promised to him. And specifically, Paul defines that promise as to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. He would be an heir of the world. Now, he's not getting that from any particular quotation in the Old Testament. You can search far and wide and you won't find any specific verse that says to Abraham you will be an heir to the world or that you will somehow inherit the earth. But there are a number of Old Testament promises that were basically made to Abraham over a period of years. And what Paul is doing here, which has been done by others, is is essentially merging all of those together. And he's drawing the conclusion that all of these promises meant that Abraham was to inherit the earth. He was to inherit the world. For example, if you have your Bibles, turn with me back over to Genesis chapter 12. This is the first uh, account in history after the, uh, what you might think of as the, 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 the essential primeval history, the, the flood account and the account of creation, everything from Genesis 1 to 11. You come to Genesis 12... And God opens with sort of the the story of Abraham and the story of redemption through him. And the first words we read there are these. He says, I will make of you a great nation. He says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will, uh, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here you see this sort of universal worldwide scope of promise to Abraham. You go over to Genesis chapter 15. In verse 5, really the entire chapter is God striking His formal covenant with Abraham. This is the covenant ceremony in which He ratifies the covenant. But you'll notice in verse 5, before the actual ceremony takes place, God reiterates His promise to Abraham. And He says to him, He brought him out, in verse 5, He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then He said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and and he counted it to him as righteousness. The key verse that Paul has been using in in Romans chapter 4. Later on in that chapter, down in verse 18, after the particulars of the covenant ceremony, the Lord, we read that on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, 
and the Jebusites. So he, he talks about a blessing that he's going to give to all the nations through Abraham. He talks about an offspring that he's going to give to Abraham. He talks about a multiplied seed. He talks about a land that he's going to give to Abraham. And then even more specifically, if you go to Genesis 17, you read in verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be, uh, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now there are a series of successive elements to those promises Not any one of them particularly was ever stated to Abraham, you will inherit the world. But what you find here are a number of elements that are involved in the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promises. Some of them are quite limited to Abraham himself. For example, the whole fact that that God says to him that he will give him a great name meaning that his name is going to be uh, exalted and set apart from every, everyone else's name, as has been true for most of history. Abraham has been honored not only in Judaism and in Christianity, even in Islam he is honored as one of the great patriarchs. He's been set apart as an example of faith. And so very specifically, God promises to give him that. Not only that, but God promises to give him a son in his old age. Even when he was past the years of childbearing. Not a promise that comes to every single believer. Some uh, go their days and in God's providence and will, they never have children. That's not a universal promise, but a specific promise to Abraham. And we even say with that that there's this promise that from Abraham's physical descendants there would come kings. And we're not always privileged, every one of us, with that kind of heritage in our life. So there are some of these promises that were limited very narrowly to Abraham. There are some which were limited in some ways to his physical descendants when God promises to grant them the land of Canaan and even defines in very specific detail the territories of that in Genesis 15. But then thirdly, there were these promises that extended beyond Abraham himself and beyond even his physical descendants to even a a broader sphere when God tells him that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When he tells him that Abraham will actually be a father to many nations, that kings and nations will come from him, and that ultimately his descendants will be like the stars of the heaven. And this is ultimately what Paul is doing. He merges together. He summarizes all of that through Abraham's descendants. God promised him the inheritance of the nations. The inheritance of the entire world. Now Paul was not the only one, as I said, to draw that theological conclusion from those verses in Genesis. 
In fact, that conclusion was first drawn by the psalmist and the prophets. You can look over at Psalm 2, for example, when it begins to speak about the Messiah, about the promised one. It speaks about him not just as a promised one to Israel, not just as a king over their nation, but as a king over many nations. He says in Psalm 2, verse 7, I I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He goes on to talk about how kings should be wise and rulers of the earth should subject themselves to the sun. In verse 12, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and and you perish in the way, for his wrath will be quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You can go over to Psalm 47, and in verse 7, not going through every verse, but just a sampling of some of these verses, Psalm 47 and verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Go over to Isaiah, the prophet who speaks in similar tones about how God's covenant and God's rule and God's ruler will extend his influence over the nation. Psalm 2, excuse me, Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days, he says in verse 2, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations. And He will decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So here you have a scene where God the Son is reigning from Jerusalem, where He is dealing with the disputes, with the remaining animosity that was there, that it is there sometimes between nations, but will no longer be solved by war, but now will be solved how? By people resorting to His wisdom. It's not a perfect world. It's not a world without sin. It's not a world where all people are glorified in perfect bodies with perfect wisdom. It's still a world of disputes, but it's a world now where there's worldwide reign of His influence and His righteousness. Isaiah 49, you see a similar sort of universal and worldwide scope. When the prophet says in verse 5, Isaiah 49, verse 5, Now the Lord says, He who formed you from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
One more, just to give you some variety. You can flip over to the book of Amos. Go to Amos chapter 9. Near the very end, we read these words in verse 11. In that day, I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So here you have the psalmist and here you have the prophets who are, who are imbibing the theology of Genesis, who are understanding the elements of the covenant, and they are projecting that in its application and its understanding that this is going to be a worldwide reign that this coming promised Messiah wouldn't be limited just to Israel, but going, He's going to extend His reign over all the nations and bring about a kingdom of righteousness. When you come to the New Testament, by the way, you see the same thing, except the, the apostles begin to speak about this in terms of our participation in it. They begin to speak about this earthly reign. They begin to speak about this, this, this uh, element of, of uh, adjudicating disputes, this element of bringing together peace, this element of extending God's reign, but now speaking about you and I participating together in it. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul just simply says this, He says, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. He's telling them, projecting into the future, you are inheritors of everything. You're heirs to everything. So don't go around as impoverished people reaching after some some low-level claim to fame and attaching yourself to some man when you will find everything in Christ. More specifically, when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And so he's just referring to the fact that coming someday in the future, it wasn't a reality for them at this point, but someday in the future, he says, you will be entrusted with judgment over the world. Not only judgment over the world, but judgment even over God's angels, Referencing here that that moment after our resurrection when we're in our glorified bodies, when we're reigning together with Christ, and we are a part, if you will, of His administration in His kingdom over the earth. One more place, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation 5 verse 9, you see a gathering of these saints around the throne And you see still a reference to a coming day. We see in Revelation 5, 9, the angels were singing a song, a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Apparently a scene from heaven before this reign has become reality. So you have this in the Old Testament, you have this in the New Testament. Over and over again, you find these references to the fact that there's going to be a worldwide kingdom, that there's going to be a worldwide reign. And so when Paul comes to address this issue in Romans, he's not inventing anything new. He's not coming up with some... some, uh, Uh, theology that's never been considered before. He's not even putting together pieces for us from Genesis that that had to wait for the New Testament to be put together. This is simply the extension of the theology of Genesis into the realities of justification by faith. Paul doesn't supplant the promises that were made to Abraham individually. He doesn't cancel them out. He doesn't supplant the promises that were made to his physical descendants in terms of a nation. But he recognizes, along with the prophets, that there would be a worldwide element to these promises and a worldwide element to this covenant. In a sense that God promises, along with the land of Canaan, the entire world to Abraham and his descendants. And the shocking declaration, according to Paul, is that all this inheritance, being heirs of the world, would not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Those who inherit it, in other words, will only be those who inherit it by faith. Whether it is the individual elements with Abraham himself, whether it's the national elements through Abraham's physical descendants or whether it is the global elements for all the future nations. Anybody who participates in it will participate only by one common denominator and that is by faith. And so all this really leads to a discussion of this promise uh, uh, to Abraham. What secures it? What grants you participation in it? And in a more general way, it really spells out for us how people become a part of the family of God. And it speaks to how people stand acceptable to Him. And it speaks of what guarantees God's blessing to us. And Paul's emphatic answer to all of that is it doesn't come through the law, but it comes through the righteousness of faith. And so with that in mind, Paul presents to us really in the, in the next few verses two key contrasts then when it comes to these blessings promised to Abraham's descendants. First of all, with the impossibility of ever securing those blessings by the law. And then secondly, with the assurance that they will be secured by faith. And so you see the first part of this that you need to understand in verses 14 and 15, the impossibility of securing these blessings by the law. Because he explains why if Abraham or his descendants are going to inherit the world, why it absolutely could not come by them keeping the law. Because as he says in verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, 
For the law brings wrath. In other words, if you're going to decide that this inheritance and this blessing is somehow going to be secured by keeping the law or by adhering to circumcision or whatever, then the promise is lost. Why is that? Because everything Paul's already said. Because no one ever has been able to do that because no one can keep the law at that level because no one can meet its demands of perfection. And since no one has ever met that standard, then the promise of God to Abraham would be voided. It would be canceled out. And why is that? Because as Paul says, the law only does one primary thing. It brings wrath. That's what he says, beginning of verse 15. It brings wrath. You may think that it secures blessing. That might be the way that you operate. You might go through your life thinking that the thing that God is responding to whenever He blesses you is your adherence to the law. You may imagine that he's blessing you because you have obeyed it, because you have been rigid with it or whatever it might be. But Paul says, if you're thinking that way, then you've misunderstood the law. That's certainly what the Jews did. They misunderstood it. They imagined that the law was given to them as a way of securing these blessings, as a way of guaranteeing their inheritance, and particularly securing the inheritance promised to Abraham. And so God gives the promise to Abraham, and it was gracious of him to do that. But the Jews believed that if you wanted to really secure it for yourself, you had better keep the law. And so the notion is, God gives the promise, but you guarantee the blessing by keeping the law. And then if you ever push the limits of the law, if you ever commit some major violation of it, you forfeit the blessing. And then the law is quite certainly your hope. The problem with that is you're never quite sure. You're never quite sure if you're on the right side of the law. You're never quite sure if you've kept it well enough to secure the blessing. You're never quite sure if you've performed well enough and every time something negative or bad comes along, you always wonder whether or not you have missed something or, or violated something or not obeyed something perfectly. And so what the Jews did is they constantly wrangled about what it means to keep the law. They constantly debated. They tried to define what it looked like in various contexts. And if you know anything about Jewish history from this time, you know that they added all kinds of specifications and rules and definitions on top of the Old Testament. They had this oral collection of the law known as the Mishnah, And there was this constant focus on getting all of this stuff right because everything depended on it. Blessings and promise and inheritance of Abraham all depended on it. And all this focus on what it was to keep the law. And what Paul's telling them here is that they got the law completely wrong. It was never intended to secure their blessing. It was never given for that purpose. And certainly if the law could not do that, then all of their man-made rules 
All the Mishnah that they added to it couldn't do that. I mean, if the law couldn't even secure their blessing, if the 600 or 700 laws that are there in the Old Testament couldn't do that, then all the the hundreds of laws they stacked on top of those weren't going to help the situation. No, the law, Paul says, it only does one primary thing. It brings wrath. Or at least it demonstrates to them that they're deserving of wrath and they stood under God's wrath. And then one day they'll be judged by the law and it will bring God's wrath. And so you can imagine that kind of life that Jews lived under, constantly living under the anxiety of whether they got the law right, whether they had properly defined it, whether they had properly followed it, wondering if they had been good enough to be a part of the the covenant with Abraham and the blessings that God intended. And then, as I said, when bad things happen or when it seemed like the blessing wasn't there or when your nation wasn't uh, thriving or when the enemies were surrounding you, wondering if somehow you had missed the issue and constantly tossed back and forth between guilt and assurance and guilt and assurance... In fact, Paul says, not only does the law bring wrath, but verse 15 goes on to say, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That statement doesn't mean that without the law, sin doesn't exist. But what Paul means is that the law makes makes sin more sinful. The law, in other words, just compounds your guilt because it makes your violation all the more evident, all the more inexcusable. In fact, God laid out specifications in the Old Testament about sins of ignorance versus sins which in the King James are translated as high-handed sins. In other words, sins where you clearly know what you're doing and you do it anyway. And those were always punished more severely because your guilt was greater when you had the knowledge. This is what Paul's talking about here. We're clued in to some extent because of the terminology he uses. He doesn't use the common word for sin. He doesn't say where there's no law, there's no sin. But he says where there's no law, there's no transgression. Parabasis is the word. It's a word for boundary. It's a word for for, uh, standard or barrier. And it has the idea of crossing over a well-defined boundary. So we might say that sin... It's a violation of God's will, but transgression is very specifically a violation of His law. If you want to think about it that way. And so we who are sinners already, when we have the law, when we have the rules, and then we break those rules, we're even more guilty. This is Israel. Increased knowledge brought increased responsibility Increased knowledge brought increased violation. Increased knowledge brought increased guilt. And so you can imagine the way they lived, constantly wondering whether or not they got it right so that they could inherit the blessing. You can imagine that because probably in many ways that's the way you've lived. Probably because that's the way that you have existed. You've lived your life under the anxiety and the pressure of trying to conform to a law that you thought assured God's blessing in your life. And then when you failed under that law, you've wrestled under the feeling that God might cast you off. You might have been raised in some sort of stern home or had 
some legacy of legalism or perfectionism that was passed down to you because of that. There were all kinds of stringent codes of conduct or all kinds of taboos that you were supposed to avoid. Or you might have been in a church that had that kind of legalistic mindset and it's been reinforced in your mind somehow that it affects your standing with God based on how many of the taboos you avoid or how many of the codes of conduct you keep. Or more personally, some of you might be involved in a relationship. A husband, a wife, a parent, an employer who is incredibly difficult to please... And so you live in a constant sense of anxiety of whether or not you're going to cross the line with this person and be cast aside in some way, whether there was going to be some eventual renunciation, some eventual rejection of you. And so you develop this this gnawing sense of, of unworthiness or shame or guilt or unease or anxiety, and you're just tossed back and forth all the time, not sure whether or not you live up to the standards that has been put before you. Or in some cases, it wasn't a person, it was God. You've done something, and it's a clear violation of God's law. It's a clear violation of His Word. You've committed a sin. You failed in some level of obedience. And now you wrestle with questions whether or not God feels the same about you. You wonder whether or not His love is sustained or whether or not it will diminish or whether somehow you'll be forever cursed under forfeited blessings. But Paul is saying... If that's your understanding of the law, then you've completely misunderstood it. You've completely misunderstood it. You've misunderstood His law. You've misunderstood His promises. Because the law was never given to secure blessing for you. If blessing is to be secured, then it has to be secured the same way it was secured for Abraham, which is faith. And that's really the second contrast that Paul presents to us here in verse 16. It isn't just the impossibility of securing these things by the law, but it's the assurance of securing these blessings by faith that he wants us to understand. Verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Paul says the way God designed it, his promises and his blessings to Abraham rested on grace. That's a beautiful word. I love that word. I don't know about you, but I like rest. I sometimes find myself dreaming about times of rest and days of rest when I don't have a care in the world, when there are no pressures, when there are no deadlines, when there are no expectations, where you can stay in your pajamas all day long. No rejection, right? Those are times of peace. They're times of joy. They're times of reviving our spirits. You feel, you know, if you want to be active, you can be active. If you want to just take it easy, you can take it easy. Times of rest. And Paul's saying that God designed... His promises 
to make Abraham an inheritor of all these blessings, all the world, so that Abraham could rest. So Abraham didn't have to bear the load of the pressure, to a, a bunch of expectations, a bunch of requirements to fulfill. God designed it so that the promise could never be threatened by Abraham's daily performance or his uh, regular performance. So, so that if he has a good day, it doesn't make him any better, doesn't make him any more likely to receive the blessing. If he has a bad day, it doesn't make, he, make him any less likely to receive the blessing. And so if God gave the promise to Abraham this way, it doesn't make sense that he would then turn around and for everyone else make it dependent on your performance. And so Paul says he not only made the promise to Abraham so it rests on grace, but notice he made it so that it is guaranteed to all his offspring. In the same way, it is guaranteed to you. It is assured to you. Those offspring uh, who the rest of the verse say, not only the adherents of the law, but also the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, not only the Jews and what is promised to them, but to anyone who believes in Abraham. If you have that faith, then God's promises are guaranteed to you. So that no level of performance, no lack of performance can affect any of that because it's not secured by your performance. And it's not forfeited by it either. It can't be. Because all your performance can do, all your adherence to the laws it can do, all it can do is bring one thing and that is wrath. So if you have any trust in that, the only ultimate outcome that you could have is wrath. But, if you understand everything Paul has said so far, and if you declare your hopeless failure in performance and in righteousness, and you place your faith in Christ, what the Scripture says is Christ takes all that wrath for you. He takes the full weight of the law on His shoulders, on your behalf. He takes all the pressures of the law on His shoulders, And when you place your faith in Jesus, you are credited with His perfect spotless righteousness as a gift of God's grace. And so it's all secure. It's all secured by His grace. The promises of Abraham, the promises that you'll be an heir of the world along with Him, and by the way, all of God's promises. There are no promises that God has ever given that are secured to us by the law. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 says in verse 3, He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus according to the riches of His grace. In other words, if you're in Christ, there's nothing that you can do that takes that away. There's nothing that you can do that takes that away. Because it was never earned by your performance. It can never be lost by your performance. It is, it always has been, always will be secured by His grace alone. And so it's guaranteed, he says. Guaranteed to you. And we understand then why when Paul comes to the beginning of chapter 5, 
he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If you don't have that peace, if you don't have that hope, we'd like to talk to you. We would love the chance to meet you. When we close our services here in a few moments, when we say a word of prayer and close in a song, we'd love to have the opportunity to explain to you how all the anxiety, all the pressure, all the guilt, and all the shame can be wiped away. And all that God has for His children can be absolutely guaranteed to you. Let's stand together and we will be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for these guarantees. We thank You for these promises. We thank You for the gift of grace. We thank You for the means of faith. We thank You, Lord, because we understand the weight and the burden of the law and performance. We understand the feelings of guilt and shame. We understand the torment of our conscience through all of our failures. We understand those things, Lord. And we understand that were it based on our good deeds, we'd have nothing before you. No eternity, no salvation, no hope. But Lord, we stand, all of us who believe, together in this room as heirs of the world, inheritors of so many blessings because of your kindness. Help us, Lord, to be unwavering in our faith, grounded in our assurance in those truths, and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.